Welcome to the Hey Salespeople podcast, where we focus on delivering immediately actionable best practices for sales professionals. I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan from SalesLoft. Hey, salespeople. Today, it is my pleasure to welcome Emily Critchfield to the show. Welcome, Emily. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Emily is the VP of Sales Operations at Samsara, and they are a pioneer in the connected operations cloud. And what that means is they help companies manage their fleet vehicles, their sites, their assets and equipment. Um, They started out in helping with trucking in particular, I remember that, uh, and helping with safety and, and asset tracking and have obviously expanded from there. We're going to talk about the first 90 days as a sales ops leader because Emily has had the pleasure of now, I guess, putting in about five, six months at Samsara after putting in five plus years in her two prior employers. And we'll talk a bit about about some of those employers because they are very familiar names to our listeners. Before we do that, Emily, I'd love to get to know our guests uh, a little bit. I know you have younger kids, so that probably takes up most of your time uh, and no more no more movies and things like that other than uh, Disney movies, I presume. But I'm wondering, TV shows for grownups, what, what are you most looking forward to that's coming out later this year? I love the show Succession on HBO. Um, if you haven't had a chance to check it out, that show has some jaw-dropping storylines and fantastic dialogue. It is a great show to check out if you haven't already. Uh, I don't watch a lot of television. The only thing I do watch... And I've really enjoyed is this show called Money Heist. It's gripping, absolutely gripping. Well, yeah, let's turn let's turn to uh, you know the first ninety days in in sales ops. Talk a little bit about you know how things were when you came in. I would assume you did some sort of a gap analysis from to and close the gap. So what what did you see when you came into Samsara? Yeah, I think you know obviously in addition to introducing myself to the business and sort of understanding where we were going as a company, I think Samsara does an awesome job at setting the tone at the top. There's several things that leadership, you know, sort of communicates to us on a very regular basis. So we have senior exec staff, we have exec staff, we have what we call core team, which is directors and up. Each of those has very specific communication frameworks and prioritization. So obviously spent a lot of time just understanding that that stuff was relatively easy to get up to speed with and, and straightforward because our CEO does such a good job at setting the tone and, and setting prioritization. So we're all laser focused on, on those things. But you know, for myself as a leader, for me, it's always number one is, is the people, right? And understanding who we are as an organization. So I actually spent most of my time in the first few months of my tenure at Samsara focused on really, one, organizing my team to be able to scale with the organization for the coming weeks, quarters, years, right? And the other part is filling out my leadership team with the right leaders. So in identifying sort of the opportunities to round out my leadership team, I've spent a ton of time doing hiring, right? And finding really leaders from the outside with the experience that we're looking for leaders like myself who have seen this this uh, play before and can help uh, bring best practices, bring playbooks to, to the organization. So using an analogy, a rough analogy, it's sort of like a hub and a spoke model, right? So at the center, you have what I would call shared services because as the organization grows, you need a center of excellence for systems, process, and tools that will really help the organization scale. 
So for example, um, I have a team that's really focused on driving the business strategy around sales productivity tools, right? So that team is really focused on not only building you know, workflows and process that will help us to be able to execute business faster, but also working on the surrounding policies and process that makes the go-to-market engine as efficient as possible. So that's the hub, right? In that hub, I would also put my sales support team. So I, I do have a small team of folks who are the dedicated frontline support for our IC salespeople, right? So they're the ones that are answering tickets about you know, rep queries about account disputes or opportunity splits, something doesn't work, they go to this frontline sales support team. So they're the hub. And then the spokes on my team, let's say, are the sort of strategy and operations chiefs of staff, I would call them, for each of our most key go-to-market leaders. So I have someone who supports our North America head of sales development, our North America commercial segment, enterprise, as well as our head of EMEA. Each of them has a senior sort of chief of staff who looks after strategy and operations for Samsara. So their responsibilities include everything from forecasting, parting and analytics, operationalizing planning. So looking at productivity, headcount planning, that sort of thing, quota setting, et cetera, et cetera. So they're really the right-hand person of the go-to-market leader that they support in all things related to ops and strategy. From your, you know, I guess if you were to wind the clock back to maybe, you know, your past experience either at Zendesk or at VMware, what sorts of, you know, initiatives did you feel were needle moving when you were there that you're looking to implement now that you're at Samsara? Yeah, I think it's really in addition to obviously putting the right team structure in place that will be able to scale with the organization looking at our prospect to customer lifecycle and ensuring that we have the right go-to-market strategy, the processes, the policy set up to support the full funnel. So Samsara has quite a different set of customers than I had at Zendesk or, or prior. And so really looking at how do we remove friction from the business and how do we allow more business to happen without adding more people and resources? That's a big focus and one of the main themes that I'll be focusing on at Samsara. You know, in our enterprise space today, there is a lot of great things happening. It's growing like crazy, but there's quite a bit of friction and areas that we can create scale, right? And improve efficiencies to make transactions easier for our customers, right? So, like, one of the big opportunities I think for us is to increase the percentage of our business that goes through a web store or a self-service type of motion, right? And that was so core to the business at Zendesk that I had, right? So um, something like probably 70 to 80% of our transactions at Zendesk went through a self-service experience. And so I'm trying to bring some of those learnings and that goodness to Samsara so that our customers can add on and expand without needing a salesperson and they can do it on their own. So These are the types of efficiencies that I think I hope to bring to Samsara in order to help that business scale. Putting on my hat as a listening salesperson, I I hear a potential threat there, right? Which is a company in general encouraging more self-service transaction business. And I I once worked in a company where, I mean, it was very, very multi-channel. We sent physical, a lot, truckloads of physical mail. We had reps calling 
emailing and so on. We had a website, right, that people would come inbound on. So you had sort of all these different sources. When you're executing this motion to shift more customer transactions to self-service, how do you think about compensating the reps in that instance? Because they might have called and emailed and done all that, and yet that it was just easier for the customer to buy online, right? That's almost the norm of how we, we operate in the B2C world. Yeah. And this definitely came up when I was at Zendesk, and I suspect the same thing will happen at Samsara, where we had sales assisted, we had self-service, and then we had this middle ground called sales assisted self-service, right? Where the reps would argue that they did selling activities with the customer, but the customer wanted to purchase through the website and swipe their credit card, for example, right? And so it looks like it's self-service, but it took rep effort, right? And so at Zendesk, we made it pretty channel agnostic. We didn't want to create this conflict. And so the reps would get quota credit and commissions for even the um, self-service portion of their business. And it was factored into their quota. Now, there was this whole other category of customers who were basically started as as self-service and never really had to go through a rep at all, right, for their first purchase. And so we comped the director level, sort of the sales leadership level for, for those types of transactions, but they weren't assigned to an owner until they were you know, ready to expand and needed to be sales assisted for some reason. So factored into the quotas, don't want to create channel conflict and wanted to make it very agnostic for the customer to have a seamless experience to be able to buy more. It's something we haven't talked about, in, but you mentioned earlier, I haven't talked about much on the show, but uh, you mentioned earlier, which I thought was fascinating, is that you've got a, a team of dedicated people who are sales support. So they are taking the tickets on rules of engagement issues, ROE issues. Can you talk a little bit about how you find people to staff that team and, and how you keep those people kind of motivated and engaged? A super interesting question. And I've been through several iterations of this. When I started a team like this at Zendesk, it was sort of like your first entry level job into sales ops, right? So in fact, in the early days, I was hiring sort of interns that we would convert to full-time analysts. Maybe this was their first, maybe second job out of college, right? And the deal was your first 12 to 18 months at Zendesk, you're going to be frontline doing support tickets, documenting process and identifying gaps that we need to then go and solve with finance operations or sales systems teams, right? So it was sort of like a way to learn what we do in ops, right? Learn the guts of the business, how we enforce policies, how we make decisions, et cetera. And that in itself for me became a career path on my team, right? Where you would in the first 12 to 18 months be solving tickets, But then in the next, you know, sort of when you were two years plus, as you were setting your sights on promotion to senior analysts, you'd be more handling, let's say, project size tickets, right? So tickets that expanded to gaps that you would have to go and, again, identify an opportunity to improve a process, work with cross-functional teams, and really drive an end-to-end solution, including learning how to do change management and communication. So this sort of became like, an analyst level expectations into a senior analyst level expectations. So that worked really well when we were small. As the organization grew, I couldn't just throw more and more analysts in these high cost areas, just answering rep tickets, right? Those people, um, they, they've moved on and become full on sales ops analysts, but I needed a more scalable way to staff frontline support. 
So we actually ended up creating a support team in Manila where they were also responsible for documentation and you know making sure that we had complete policies around the types of tickets that they were solving, right? So that we were, again, building for scale. And in Manila, we were able to find awesome resources, including people managers that helped us staff a follow the sun model. So we actually had three different time zones that were doing 24 by five coverage so that our international EMEA and APAC teams were also staffed with frontline support in their time zone. This was an awesome resource for us to be able to give sales reps that day-to-day attention, right? Because no matter how much you build for scale and define process and make things, you know, we had great resources, especially at Zendesk, you know, building knowledge bases and self-service information at your fingertips. But we still needed a small team to be able to just answer specific questions. Not only did we have this staffing that was follow the sun, we actually created a live chat experience for them as well so that they could go to a sales ops help center and be able to connect with someone live and over live chat. That got great feedback from our sales team and really built a sense of like, hey, sales ops is here to support us. That's truly next level sales support. With, with respect to hiring, so you, you have to hire a number of people. Like with respect to hiring people, what sorts of profiles do you look for? And the reason I ask that is, I get asked that question a lot, right? Is a, a salesperson will come to me inside of sales loft or from anywhere, you know, outside and say, hey, I'm, I'm thinking about going into sales ops. What do I need to do to be considered and successful. I have my own opinions on it, but I'd love to hear your opinions first. I mean, there is the obvious, you know, job history, the type of background that people get into this sort of thing, right? But I actually look for more leadership and personality capabilities more so than a specific background. As an example, right now I am looking for someone with that can help me do strategy and operations for our public sector, right? But I actually look for people more so that have a demonstrated experience in building and building for scale, right? I love to work at companies that are, you know, just at the beginning of their growth stages, right? And all we do is think about how do we do this for the next 100 reps? How do we do this for the next 100 million dollars, right? And so folks who can demonstrate that they have really solved business problems at high in high growth environments can do end-to-end thinking, can align stakeholders, and almost most importantly, like manage through change. That's almost more important to me than any specific company or role that I see on a resume. I optimize for scrappiness. I optimize for end-to-end 360-degree thinking and the ability to like align and influence stakeholders. Those are probably the most important things to me and what I look for in in leaders and folks on my team. How important is math or programming experience? Like you came out of school with a business degree and you know business communications degree, uh, worked in consulting after that. You must have picked up some math and maybe some computer science along the way. Was, was that an important part of your trajectory? And is that something you look for in the people you hire? It depends on the role. Um, you certainly need those types of resources on your team. However, I find that to get scale, I tend to have, you know, a couple of technical resources on the team that can really build tools that we can use across my team and across the business, right? So it's not necessarily 
critical that every single person on your team have a programming background, for example, right? As long as you have sort of a center of excellence that can help you build tools that the rest of the organization can use. However, I do find that folks that come into sales operations, maybe again, they're you know less than five years into their career, they tend to want to go back and learn a programming language or learn SQL, right? So they tend to take on, you know, now all tech companies offer their employees a budget for learning, right? So a lot of my team, if they don't want to go get their SFDC admin cert, they tend to want to go and take these types of courses, of which I think is an awesome way to encourage people to expand upon their skill sets and build out a resume, right? I think that's a no regret move if you build in those types of technical capabilities. If it's something that you're interested in, I think it's a no-brainer. Well, you had mentioned that two of the things you look for were scrappiness and 360-degree thinking. Interview processes are notoriously difficult to assess those types of factors. I'm curious, what do you, what do you either questions you ask or back-channel research you do? How, how do you actually establish that? Because you know, if you ask someone, hey, give me an example of when a time you were scrappy, they've all got one in the back. Well, they should have one in the back pocket. If they don't, then they, you know, they got some interviewing practice to do. How do you tease through the stuff that's, that's legit versus surface deep? You know, very simply, a lot of the business challenges that folks give as examples in their interviews, like I've been there before, right? So I asked for, how do you identify the problem? What were the specific steps you took? And what was the impact, right? And I want to know that people can tell me what was the impact, right? Who did you influence? How much business did it drive? What was the result for the company, right? Whether it was increased efficiency, you drove bookings, etc, etc. So just playing out those scenarios in sort of that framework is really important for a candidate to be able to demonstrate to me, again, that end-to-end thinking, right? How did you identify a problem? What did you do? And how did you get people to come along with you? And then what was the result for the business, right? We also, as part of our interview process at Samsara, always have a quantitative and qualitative homework exercise for our candidates to do that is basically a maybe a small snapshot of the type of business problems that a person in the role that you know we're hiring for would face right whether it be a small forecasting exercise or a business planning exercise these are the types of opportunities that we have to really get our candidates outside of the interview environment and be able to demonstrate to us how they think, how they build an analysis, and then how they can prepare a written communication to properly explain their line of thinking, right? And I think this type of exercise is super critical and often leads to different impressions of candidates than you would get just from a 30 to 45 minute, in these days, Zoom conversation, right? In an interview. So it's been really critical for our hiring processes and really helpful to understand how candidates think and approach a problem. Yeah, I really like that. The, the other thing you mentioned, I, th- I think was a really valuable piece of your team is that you carve out a certain amount of technical resources who will build things for salespeople. You, you know, you're inundated as we all are by people trying to sell us stuff all the time. When someone comes in with a request, like a business request, internal business request that feels compelling to you, how do you go about the buy versus build decision? I don't think there's a magic bullet for this. There's 
sort of like a order of operations of how you think about things, right? The first thing is always budget. Right? It's just how much do I have in the way to spend? And oftentimes I think the business comes to you because they have either used a tool before in a previous work environment or they've really already swiped their credit card and downloaded, you know, like one license and they want to expand upon it. So many times like the businesses come to me and said, I want this tool rather than I have this business requirement, this gap or this opportunity, right? It's really up to ops to help the business understand the difference, right? Which is what problem are we trying to solve for? Because very often you get point solutions that are only good for a particular use case, a particular segment or a particular geography. And as ops, as we all know, budgets, if unconstrained at first, will be at some point. And so we really need to, again, think about scale and think about how do we get the right tools, whether they be in-house or bought externally, to help our organization grow. I always have to pivot the conversation back to what is the business problem you're trying to solve? And then let's come up with a recommendation. Now, a lot of times the recommendation is there is a best-in-class tool that we can use to bypass internal development and these cycles, right? Because that in itself, it costs money, right? And time and resources. Nobody ever talks about maintenance, right? And that's so important and generally falls within the, the scope of what sales ops has to contend with. But when it comes to buy, I think you know there's also the discipline of not going with the first tool that someone mentioned because they used it at a, at a different company, but to really think about, does this necessitate an RFP cycle? Have we looked at what the best-in-class tools are? Do we have a process for this, right? Who needs to sign off on this? Do we have business requirements documented? Like There should be a process by which that this uh, decision is made. And you know, I've been through all iterations of this. It's really hard to do. Um, it's really hard to get that discipline and that due diligence in place. But if you don't do that, what you end up with is you know, a list of 150 tools used by a sales organization that just becomes difficult to manage, difficult for ops to maintain suboptimal tools, right? And, and just a, a bad sales user experience overall. So lots of lessons learned there in my career about how to focus on what the business needs are and how to find the right strategy for tools that are either built in-house or bought externally in order to support the ever-evolving needs of the business. Yeah. For, for me, I have a sense. I don't think it's perfect, but I have a good sense of, of how hard things are to build. So that's part of my decision criteria also is like, do I think this is something we could build in, in two to three months a prototype with? And, and that prototype might get thrown away. A, a good example of this is our customer success team was spending hours doing QBR decks that they quarterly business review decks that they would present to the customer, pulling data out of you know different systems on the back end, formatting charts and all that sort of thing. So, you know, we knew there were a couple of commercial tools out there. We figured let's build an internal version. So we built an internal version that connected Looker and Salesforce into Google Slides, and you know they would just basically pull up an account, push a button, and get their deck. That was a good solution. And then yeah, maintenance becomes becomes difficult over time and they want more and more features and functionality. And eventually we shifted over and uh, licensed technology from, from a vendor, Matic, M-A-T-I-K, to be able to, to do that for us. But I, I kind of like that approach because I almost feel if we started with Matic early on, it wouldn't have been as successful because 
we we did so much customization and and change management right you talked about the people being the most important thing like in any of these things the people in the process matter so much more than the than the technical solution well we're we're about to, out of time i just wanted to ask one last question as you reflect on well i'll actually ask it this way which is imagine you're going to go into a new organization and run sales operations I'm not going to give you the the luxury of being able to talk to people and study and figure out what's wrong. What play that you've run in the past do you think has had the biggest impact on the ability for sales ops to contribute to the business? I think it's identification of the company's strategic priorities and really putting down on paper and making super explicit for the sales operations organization what the team mission is and how they basically assist the organization in meeting those company and corporate objectives, right? For me, it's all about alignment of vision, goals, objectives. Everything that my team does down to the IC level needs to be able to be justified as against where the the company's going, right? I think too often in operations, we are plagued by fire drills and changing of direction and the next shiny thing. And those, those things will happen, right? It's, it's almost impossible. Like, you know, in fact, if it stops happening, you're probably at the wrong company because you want to go somewhere that is growing and changing and failing and changing direction. So being a sales ops leader, it's so important to set that direction, leave room for the unknown, but really set direction and roles and responsibilities in order to help the organization at large meet its objectives. I'll underline and highlight leave room for the unknown. And I think that's a a good piece of advice to end on. Emily, it was such a pleasure learning from you and chatting with you today. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed this. Hey, Salespeople is a production made in partnership with Frequency Media. I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan. This podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever podcasts are found. Thanks for listening to the Hey, Salespeople podcast. 